Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Tom, we have good news for our listeners today. Oh, hopefully it's not coupled with bad news, but what is the good news? Well, it's it's not just you and I on the podcast today. We have a guest, so that we'll is save them from our, you know, coming off our hot take episode last week. Um, yes. Right. I think people will be pleased to hear a third voice come into the conversation. It's certainly um, going to raise the uh, intellectual bar from last week's episode. But um, I guess if this is the bad news, we have the benefit of looking at a Zoom screen and there's three of us and I can't help but hear the song from Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. Because you have two former practicing attorneys in part turned author. And so um, I'm going to just a little bit sit back and listen to you guys discuss what our guest is bringing to the table today. All right. So let's bring our guest in. So we're pleased to have Adam Pascarella join us today, who's the founder of Second Order Capital Management and the author of Reversed in Part, 15 Law School Grads on Pursuing Non-Traditional Careers. Adam's a former litigation associate at Baker McKenzie and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So Adam, welcome to the podcast. Jay, Tom, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you too. And so as, as Tom was mentioning, and um, I, you know, we, we're kind of uh, all, it, I know Tom isn't a, a former lawyer, nor did he go to law school, but he is an author, as we were talking about before we got on the show today. And um, but you and I have the same experience of having been practicing lawyers who, who left and are pursuing um, non-traditional careers. And I think it's really awesome that you, you wrote this book, which is um, re- relatively recently released, like in the last couple months here, I, I know. And um, I have not read cover to cover yet, but I was mentioning to you beforehand, um, is, a, is an am- amazing book from as far as I can tell from what I've read so far, um, which is a fair amount of it. And uh, you just, I mean, it's impressive. So congratulations to you, uh, job well done. And I wanna dig into that book today. So in any event, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. And I know both of your authors as well. So you can empathize with the struggle and all of that that goes with creating and publishing a book. So kudos to both of you as well. And I, as long as we're passing out kudos, Jay (laughs) is an excellent author. So if he's heaping that praise on, A, I know it's legitimate because Jay's doesn't BS, but um, if he's keeping that praise on you, I mean, it's it's well-earned because he's an excellent author and writes for a similar audience. So kudos. Well, thanks. Yeah. That, so, that definitely- <laughs> so yeah, well, thank you, Tom. And and, and it's totally genuine. Um, I, I do believe that this was a really, really amazing book. So I want to dig in there, Adam, and start talking about it. And I like, you know, when it comes to writing books, I like digging in sometimes on process questions, because I thought, think it's always interesting to learn about how other people approach a book. Um, and this is, you know, this was, this was a, must've been a labor of love. So how long did this project take you? Because, um, for non-authors, you know, writing a book is much more than just sitting at the keyboard and, and banging out pages. Right. So, but from sort of idea formulation to complete product, like how long did this take? Mm. So from the, the Genesis to the finished product, it probably took, I'd say about four to five years, but the writing process took about three years. So taking a step back, I was a litigation associate at a big firm in New York City where I'm currently located. 
I was practicing for about two, two and a half years when I decided that I wanted to do something else. Back in law school, even in college, I was more, I had more of an entrepreneurial mind. I wanted to start my own business. I didn't know exactly what that was. But along with that, I was just looking for other opportunities outside of the legal field. And Jay, as you know, when you're in law school, it's kind of drilled into you that you have to be an attorney. You have to be a practicing attorney, even though law school arguably sets you up with all of these skills and experiences that you can apply in other domains. And there comes the phrase, you can do anything with a law degree. So you have all these things working together. But at the same time, I'm sitting in my office at a corporate law firm in New York, thinking about doing something else. And I spoke with some of my friends and for, you know, professional uh, contacts that had done something similar, but I wasn't really getting all of the experiences and insights that I wanted and that I thought others would want. Basically, that led me to write this book. I wanted to write a book that would help me and other attorneys that were thinking of doing other things. You know, that It wasn't like they hated the law or we were being pushed out of their law firm. They were just looking for an opportunity or a job that was more fulfilling to, to what they were looking for out of their career. That's what led me to write the book in the first place. Um, the book is, includes my interviews with 15 individuals who have done something similar to, to me and UJ. And between researching the individuals I wanted to interview, interviewing them, you know, transcribing everything, writing introductions, writing key takeaways that did take about three years. It was a side project. It wasn't my main, my main gig or anything. But it does take a lot of dedication to not only get your interviewees lined up, but then put pen to paper and then go through the whole self-publishing process. This book is self-published. So it, it was a long road to get to this point, but I'm extremely happy with the way that it turned out. Yeah. And uh, so I, that, I, that makes sense why it would take that long. I mean, I for my second book, I that's the only one where I really did a lot of subset of interviews with other lawyers and whatnot. That's, it's a lot of work to go through that process. W question for you. Uh, what did, so is, how did you go about, you know, securing these interviews? Like you have some significant people here that many people will um, know of, like uh, Keith Raboy, for example. Um, how did you go about, I guess, reaching out to these folks, finding them in the first place to incorporate them in, into the book, just to give people some perspective. The way Adam wrote this book was organize it by chapter with um, these deep dive interviews with these people who were, um, you know, in law school and practicing law and then left to their non-traditional path that they went on. Um, and so how did, how did you go about that process of securing these interviews and, and um, you know, nailing down who exactly you wanted to talk to? Yeah, so, so just for a little bit more of context, the book is, if your listeners have ever read the Market Wizards series by Jack Schwager or Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston, those are two books that I based my book off of, where you have deep dive interviews into individuals. Each chapter is dedicated to one particular person, and it's basically a Q&A format, and I did that because I wanted the interviewee's words to actually reflect what they were, were saying. I didn't want, I didn't want my my analysis to totally overwhelm their words. Now in the last chapter, it includes my key takeaways, but the, the meat of the book is the interview. So back to your original question, I actually reached out, reached out to Keith first and everything was done via cold email. Uh, all 15 people I had no prior connection with. I didn't know anyone that knew them. Maybe if I dug a little bit different, uh, dug a little bit deeper, I would have found some mutual connection, but it really was finding email addresses online and cold emailing. And, and with Keith, I, it was the first person I reached out to. And the book was, was, I had some idea of what I wanted to write in the book, but I didn't exactly know. So it was kind of a little, little test for me just to see if someone would sign on, if the idea was good. 
And he, he very quickly said he would do it. it. It took a little bit of time to schedule the interview, but he did. And that was, Keith was almost my anchor interview that I had. So when I would go to other people that I was interested in, I would say, hey, I spoke with Keith Raboy. He spent an hour with me talking about his law school experience. You want to join me in this book project? And then from there, I kept building momentum that way. As far as the people that I spoke with, in the beginning, I was more interested in the startup and tech community. I do think that a lot of lawyers and law students now are interested in startups. If you look at the legal tech community in general, it's gotten much bigger compared to even when I was in law school. So it is a viable option for a lot of people. So there was that angle and also because I was interested in it. So I spoke with Keith, uh, Sandra Daniels, who's the COO of Thumbtack, and um, David Hornick also, who's a venture capitalist. Uh, so I started with startups, tech, and then I wanted to diversify. I wanted to get as, as many sectors as I could without without inundating the reader with profiles. Because as I went through this project, I did realize that lawyers can do a bunch of things with their, their law degree legal experiences, but I couldn't cover everything in the book. So I was really looking for a diversity of, of experiences in that respect. So spoke with an artist, I spoke with a nonprofit CEO, I spoke with Jay Billis, who's the ESPN commentator. That was so the thing that stuck really, out at me. That I saw yeah. Jay Billis and I'm like, all right, so I'm not an attorney. Uh, I'm not a huge like follower of biz- business celebrities, but that guy I know, right? He's a basketball player. <laughs> he, in my world, he's a household name. It, that yeah. chapter was r- really interesting because I had no idea that he had studied law. I figured he played ball, he went to pro, and then he got an uh, analyst gig. So was there uh, any major aha moments strictly from the Jay Billis chapter that you found interesting? I thought it, yeah, I thought it was interesting is that his life was really centered around basketball, even before, during, and after law school. Even as a practicing attorney, he was thinking about ways that he could both ingratiate himself in the basketball community, maybe even get into it at some point. And so what he would, what he ended up doing when he was a practicing lawyer is that he got some very small announcing gigs. I think it was in North Carolina area with some school. And he really, he, he was able to do that on the side. He got the the blessing from his his boss and his law firm to go do these broadcasting gigs so long as he got his work done. And from there, he kept getting bigger and bigger gigs until he ended up at ESPN. And that's when he he left. He's actually still of counsel at his law firm, which has been over 25 years. He's been there a long time. But it just goes to show that I think that lawyers, we and rightly so, we, we put ourselves into our work because our clients expect it, right? Being a lawyer is a very demanding job. You have to do the best that you can for your clients. But at the same time, you don't have to be a robot. You, you know, your work, your life doesn't have to be solely about work. You can have hobbies on the side. And both Jay and there is another individual in the book who had hobbies on the side that transitioned, that transformed into their full-time careers after legal practice. So it, it gives you I guess a little bit of optionality. I don't know if that's too calculated of a way to look at it, but I, I do think that's important for listeners to understand is that don't give up your hobbies, even if you're in law school or if you're a practicing lawyer, because you never know what'll, what'll come out of them. Can I ask a quick follow-up question, uh, Jay, if you don't mind? Um, and that is, cause this is something of a hobby for you, right? I'm assuming that you didn't transform your career into a writing career with one book. Maybe you did, but if you're like me, it wasn't like a career move so much as it was a passion project that aligned with my career. So going back to Jay's question, why this book? Cause it's a ton of work. There had to be something beyond the financial payoff that drove you to do this book. Well, for, for me, honestly, it was a labor of love. I wanted to help other attorneys that were in this position because I, I was looking at 
statistics, you know, there was one study from the American Bauer Foundation. They did a study in 2000. They were looking at lawyers who had moved on to other things outside of practice. After three years, I think it was about 9%. And after about 12 years, it was 25%. So, and, and this was a study back in 2000 to 2012. You can imagine what the statistics are now with the great resignation happening, with lawyers being overworked. So th there are many lawyers, I, I believe, that do want to do different things with their careers. And I wanted to, to help them. And then selfishly for myself, I was going through the same transition. I wanted to speak with notable individuals who had made this um, transition out of the law into other things. And really, even as I continue on my career to this day, I flip back to the interviews and there are plenty of nuggets of information out there, both inspiring and, and practically that can help me accomplish what I want to accomplish. So it was really both the selfish desire to advance my own career and also the desire to help others that were in my position. Yeah, so I want to circle back. I, I, I'm fascinated by... Um, Keith or Boy and and the rest of the PayPal mafia, obviously. So for people who don't know, I'll let you describe it more. But um, Raboy was part of uh, PayPal when uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and and Reed Hoffman and the others were part of that company. Um, and so you know he's 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 kind of an icon of Silicon Valley now. Um, and I thought his chapter was pretty amazing. I mean he's he is clearly a, just a laser sharp blue flame thinker, at least based on the, what, what jumped off the page for me. Um, I thought it was really one of the first thing I wanted to just get your perspective on um, that stood out to me was, you know, as he was thinking about leaving Sullivan and Cromwell to pursue something new, um, he was very, being very strategic about it. And he asked himself a question that I don't think many lawyers think about when they're thinking about making a move out of the law, um, which is oftentimes like, I just got to get out of this frying pan. I think that's how a lot of lawyers think about it. The way Raboy thought about it was, can I be one of the best in the world at this? So he's thinking in terms of what career could he go into where he could be one of the best in the world, which is, which is interesting because, um, you know, I don't know if he thought he could be that in the practice of law. I, that was the implication I, I got, which, which makes sense because there are so many smart, talented, super hardworking, diligent, dedicated people that are going into the practice of law because it seems like the best path out of like college to go to law school and go get a great job in the practice of law when there's so many more there's there's so many more opportunities outside the law for many people. So I guess can you speak to that a little bit, Adam, and and give us your perspective on maybe his his thought process as to what ultimately took him out of the practice of law. Yeah, when I, when I first heard him say that, that that was his litmus test. Can I be the best in the world at this? I, I had the same reaction as you. I thought hmm, not not many attorneys think that. It's more of a negative approach to leaving the law. And I, I think that's the other level that Keith operates on and it, why he has so much success that he has. Another thing that really astonished me is how much he values opportunity costs. He, he really puts a premium on his time. And now Keith is so wealthy that that's, that's the one limit to, to what he wants. He has all the money he needs. All he has is time. And so he, he's very... He, he's very protective of his time and he wants to make sure that whatever he's working on is worth it. And like you were alluding to, the, the law is a fiercely competitive industry. If you look at Peter Thiel, who was another member of the PayPal mafia and um, yeah, one of Keith's friends, even in law school, he basically said that the legal field is like a tournament and it's, it's hyper competitive. You're trying to basically level up to the next best thing and the next best thing. And it's so competitive that it's nearly impossible to get to that yeah. point. I, I think 
Keith and I know Peter, but Keith or Peter definitely wanted to become a Supreme Court um, clerk. He wasn't able to. I'm not sure if Keith was wanted to do that. But it's, it's hyper competitive. And at the time, this was in the 2000s, you know, the Internet's uh, bubble was happening. There were plenty of opportunities there. And I think Keith also had this this deep sense of security in himself and his abilities, too. I mean, even asking that question, can I be the best in the world? Is, <laughs> not many people mm-hmm. do it. He's, he's very he's a very confident person and, and rightly so. So I. I think that's an interesting question to ask for attorneys listening to this that may be considering leaving the law. You don't, I don't think you necessarily have to be the best in the world at whatever it is that you're pursuing, but it goes to the, the deeper idea or question about, are you really spending time on both something that you're interested in and also something that maybe means more to you is less competitive. You know, asking these questions is really important. Yeah. And I think he also brings to light something that's oftentimes overlooked, which is that, um, the practice of law, you know, even in a just private practice, big law firm where it might seem like you have a very siloed, um, you know, discreet experience, he, he suggests that it's actually a really good training ground for, you know, even doing something entrepreneurial in the startup world. Um, and it's just important to recognize what those skills and advantages you might be gaining through that experience are. It, that, that to me stood out as well. Is that, was that your reading of it as well? For sure. Yeah. And it wasn't yeah. just in his in his chapter, even mm-hmm. in Anthony Scaramucci's chapter, mm-hmm. he mentioned how many soft skills that you get by being a law student and a lawyer. And this includes things like analytical skills, problem solving skills, attention to detail, time management, all of these things that we think are part and parcel of being a lawyer, which they are, they're actually transferable to plenty of other areas. Now, granted, in, in what I do now, I don't track my time in six minute increments like I do. But you still have these sort of habits that I think make you more efficient and kind of increase your odds of success of whatever you're doing. Yeah. And then and the last thing on Raboy that I thought um, was really, well, two things really, uh, more comments, maybe you can react to these, but things that I found really interesting um, was, first of all, his take on law school. Um, this getting back to your, the point you raised, Adam, about opportunity costs, how he was suggesting mm-hmm. it's just too long. Like it doesn't need to be that long. And I, I totally agree, but I never thought of that on my own. You know what I mean? I think that's just the example of his, his level of thinking. And then he also talked about his clerkship experience and some of the lessons learned from that and talking about how that's really good for honing your first principles thinking. And you oftentimes hear people in the tech world and investing world talk about first principles, certainly Peter Thiel and others. Um, it's not something I hear in the in the legal world all that much. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but sort of in those, in investing and in in tech, I always hear people talking about first principles thinking. Um, and I don't know why we're not talking more about that in the legal industry as well, because I do think it's it's important. So I don't know if that's something you want to follow up on, certainly could describe for people what that means to the extent they're not familiar with like the concept of first principles thinking. But I thought that was interesting that, that he raised that as part of something he learned um, or honed through cl- clerkship of all things. Yeah, totally. And, and even his former PayPal colleague, Elon Musk, he, I think he's one of the mm-hmm. biggest proponents of first principles thinking. And it really mm-hmm. boils down to going, lo- looking at the physics or the fundamental aspects of a certain problem or, or thing that you're encountering and building up from there, instead of using, you know, assumptions that we have about the world. And this is, I think it's a useful mental model when you're trying to create something new, like whether that's a startup, but you could probably even use it in, you know, if you're analyzing a 
a legal case or you were writing a brief on a particular matter, I, I do think first principles thinking is very helpful and not many people do it because it's hard. It, it takes a lot of time and, you know, we're all busy people. We all have lives to live. We want to get our work done. But uh, the, the true greats, it seems like, rely on this mental model. So if your listeners can do that, more power to you. And then as far as your law school comment, yeah, he was, I was kind of surprised by that. And I do agree that, you know, three years, especially now, is, is kind of long, especially with uh, how, how much law school costs. There's, there's that factor as well. Uh, Jay, as, as you can attest to, most of the training that you get um, by becoming a lawyer is on the job. It's not in law school. Law school can teach you these first principles, I suppose, and you can join clinics. That was one of the, the best experiences I had in law school. But really, the, the best thing, if you want to be a practicing lawyer, is to get out there and practice law. Yeah, no doubt. All right, let's shift gears a little bit to kind of going to the kind of the back of the book. This is where um, a really powerful section of the book where you kind of summarize the 25 key takeaways. Um, I was, Tom, I'll pass it over to you for this, because I know there are a couple of these that you wanted to ask Adam about, um, and then maybe see if Adam has a, a take on you know, what maybe what he thinks uh, a couple of the most important takeaways might be, or interesting takeaways uh, might be. But why don't, why don't you take that first one on, Tom? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'll just start by noting that, again, I'm not, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a former attorney, but so much of what you wrote about it feels universal to me. Um, and I think people in a lot of industries are going through career changes. I mean, the p- pandemic, you know, everyone's re- resigning, they're reassessing. So kudos again for making, I, I know it wasn't your intent, but you came up with these takeaways that to me were universal. Two uh, resonated with me um, that I experienced firsthand. So I did not get a law degree that for which I could do anything afterwards. I got an English degree, which meant I couldn't do nothing. so after college i pursued my passion and i joined a rock and roll band and for seven years i tried to make it as a professional musician um and when i came time to realize i couldn't do that anymore um it was crippling because i had to find a real career and i knew what i wanted to do and i kind of lucked into a career in public relations and advertising and marketing um which was always kind of the plan b or c but I realized I was no longer pursuing a passion and that was like deflating because of another. So one of your takeaways is be careful about following your passion. Okay. So I want to get your thoughts on that. But another one uh, of the takeaways was be aware of the identity trap. And for me, when I realized I couldn't pursue my passion and my identity was no longer what I wanted it to be, which was this rock star. And now I'm working for the man. Like it took years to overcome this. This is not who I am. I know I'm going in and I'm punching a clock from 8.30 to 5, but the fact that it's not me was really debilitating. So what do you mean for those two? Are they two sides of the same coin perhaps? And, and what um, anything you want to add about those takeaways that came from the discoveries with your interview? So don't follow your passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as far as passion, I mean, that's that's a debate that that many of us have, right? It's, mm-hmm. I, I think Mark Cuban said, you shouldn't follow your passion, you should follow your effort. So there's that one side, follow your effort or what you're good at, potentially. And then the other side is follow your passion, follow your bliss, as, as you know, the bumper stickers say. Mm-hmm. I, if you were to ask me what side, if I'd gone to the head, what side I would choose, I would probably choose the, the effort side. And there are a couple of reasons. First of all, I, I think in the beginning, you don't necessarily need to be passionate about something that you do become passionate about. An example A in the book is Sandra Daniels, who's the COO of Thumbtack. 
And I, I asked him whether entrepreneurs should follow their passion or not. And he said, when I started Thumbtack, I wasn't passionate about local services. It wasn't like I was five years old. I was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, it's like, I want to specialize in local services. That's like not a thing back then. So his passion ultimately grew the, the better that he got. And that's, that's what I subscribe to. Um, I think that once you start to see traction in what you're doing, once you start to get good at what you're doing, it becomes more interesting because you get to, you get to understand the nuances of your particular sector or industry. You get to be more creative. If you're a lawyer, you get to you know, bend some case law or find some cases from the 1800s or whatever that can help you do what you do. And that's, that becomes interesting and you become more passionate about it. So I, I do think that even if you're not passionate about the law, for instance, that maybe that passion can grow. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to quit right away. So that's, that's where I come on the passion front. The identity trap one, that's, that's a really tough one. And, you know, I, I did want to ask you, Tom, I'll answer, but I did want to ask you how you broke out of that. But, but for lawyers, it's, it's really difficult because you spend three years of your life in very stressful conditions, trying to find your first job out of law school. You're, you're really inundated with legal theory. You're doing clinics, you're doing these sort of things. And then you get into the legal world and you start practicing. And there's a lot of status involved with that. You could be making great money. And on the outside, you seem very successful, both financially and non-financially. Now, if you want to do something else, even if you're passionate, passionate again, about something else that you want to do, um, and you do make the leap to do that, it can still be painful because the past six years of your life or whatever wrapped up being a lawyer. And so even if you become an entrepreneur and you start your dream startup, it, it could be difficult making that transition. And I, I don't, I, at least in the book, I don't think I offer any key or clear suggestions on how to break out of it. I, I do think it takes time. Um, and also it's important if you can somehow to distance yourself from the success or non-success that you get at work. Now that's hard for, for lawyers and others who are high strivers. We have high goals. We want to become partner or the Supreme Court clerk, whatever. But it's, it's something that's necessary in order to avoid this trap. That's, that's at least my, my takeaway. Yeah. Tom, so how, what, how, did you, how did you break out of that? Well, two ways, if anyone cares. One is I have a uh, lovely but blunt and direct wife who one day said, why do you got to be passionate about your job? Can't you be passionate about something else? Like explore something else and apply your talents to that. Like you think I'm get passionate about going to work as a finance secretary? I'm like, oh yeah, right. And then the other one was just recently, I wrote about this last week, the realization, you know, I, I sit back and lament that I didn't have some sort of career in creativity, whether that be a musician or a novelist or something. And I realized, well, what do I do all day? And I write for a living. It dawned on me. I write for a living and I get paid to do that. So I am a writer. So this whole, like, again, the identity trap that I'm lamenting, not who I thought I'd become. Well, yeah, I, I wasn't passionate about blog posts when I was six years old either, but I'm still passionate about writing. I get to write for a living. And uh, so between my wife kind of slapping me across my face and then just doing some introspection. I, and so here's my takeaway. So why I think you're so spot on in your book, you got to get rid of all that mental garbage, right? It's, mm. it's, it's all self-imposed. Nobody else looks at you and says, oh, Jay's not an attorney anymore. Man, he didn't cut it. Which is right. That's all. Totally in your head. So that's, I know that's not easy to do. It took me 40 years to do it, but <laughs> here I am. Yeah. yeah. And well, is it, is it, or go ahead, Jay. 
Oh, good. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, that that all resonates. And, and it is, it's, it's sort of closely related to, you know, the getting past sunk costs too, right? Because you put so much into uh, uh, legal education, you probably took on debt and then, yeah, whatever you invested in your career. And then you feel like you're, quote, throwing it away when you just might be moving towards something better. For sure. Yeah. And another one of the key takeaways is that a step backward isn't necessarily a poor decision if you're on the right path. And there are plenty of examples of that in the book. Like Anthony Scaramucci is one of them. He got fired from Goldman Sachs. He was making $110,000 a year in an analyst position, was rehired at Goldman for a $56,000 sales position. But that sales position fit him so well that he made 10x, 100x, whatever it was that he would have made if he wasn't fired as an analyst. So careers aren't always up and to the right like a stock chart. That doesn't happen. You just have to roll with the punches, keep trying new things and go from there. Yeah. And I guess um, maybe the last thing we can talk about, we do have you know enough listeners who are law students and, and lawyers who are in the early years of their career. And one thing we emphasize in the context of like marketing, like you, look, you, you need to be building your network. You need to be developing relationships. This is, these are the, this is the asset that's going to um, help you, you know, build a practice one day if that's the route you want to go. But certainly in this book, it demonstrates, and, and one of your takeaways is the importance of relationships. And I think that's just universal, you know, talk about one of these universal principles. Um, that really is everything. I mean, if you look at um, all of the stories, really, I mean, there, there's elements of key relationships that people were tapping to, to pivot into something new, it seems like, in, in every case. I mean, that's just, that's just always the case. So I think that's, that's huge um, to always be thinking in terms of um, developing a network, um, adding value to it, and you're leaving yourself open for um, serendipity or also strategically leveraging that network when you need it. So I, you want to talk about that for a minute, Adam? Yeah, no, no doubt. That's the number one takeaway I had from this entire experience was, was the power of relationships. And especially if you're listeners who are in law school, that is one of the best places to build long-term relationships. And looking back, I wish I did a better job at that. But when you're in law school, it's so easy to focus on your academics, especially your first year, because that plays a huge role in what internship you get during your 2L summer and therefore what first job you get out of graduation. So academics are huge, rightly so. But if you're looking at the long term of your career, you don't know what's going to happen. Like me, you may transition to a different industry. And when you do that, you're going to need to rely on relationships. There's no doubt about it. Uh, all 15 people in this book I don't think could would have logged on to Indeed.com or, or any sort of job portal, blindly submitted their resume and gotten the dream opportunity that they wanted. It was all out of relationships, all out of quote unquote networking and just and staying in touch with old contacts as well, just because it's so easy nowadays to to build great connections, but then let them just die as, as time goes by. So that's another huge thing. But that's clearly the number one takeaway from this book is the power of relationships. And better yet, if you don't have the relationships, relationships that you want, you can build them through cold email like I did. You can, you can reach out to your current network, see if they know someone else that uh, can help you with whatever it is that you want. So there are, there are easy ways to build your network. It just takes time and dedication to do it. Yeah. Or you can decide to write a book for four years. That's a good way to develop relationships, right? <laughs> that's I mean, enough. It's a more painful way, but yes, that's true. Yeah, but but it's true. I mean, Tom and I talk about this a lot. I mean, we one of the reasons we have this podcast is we get to have interesting conversations with people who then become part of our network, and that's that's a cool thing. So I guess the the uh, the takeaway is sometimes you 
it is helpful to have some sort of platform. Um, with, it doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be a podcast, but some means of collaborating with people because then it's it's seen as like some mutual exchange of value rather than you always seeming like you're you're asking something of someone. You're able to provide them with something. So that might be a way for people to think about like how to expand one's network. Totally. Yeah. It's uh, the the goal should be continuously providing value. It's it's not easy. We're all busy. We all have busy lives, but you don't want to tap into the network when you need it. You, you need to keep relying. You need to keep contributing, like you say, to the, to the network so that when you actually do need help, it's not like you're coming out of the blue. So I, I agree with that. Awesome. Tom, any, th- any last things before we, uh, we let Adam go? Well, just Adam, tell everyone where we can find the book and we will link to that in the show notes. Well, thanks a lot. You can find it at reversedinpart.com. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Google Books, Apple Books, basically everywhere. So thank you for the opportunity. It was great speaking with you. And I hope people uh, get some value from the book. They will. They will. They will for sure. It's a, it's a really good book. We highly recommend it um, and encourage you to check it out. So, um, well, thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. This was really interesting. And Tom, um, we'll see you next week on our, on our next recording. And for everyone who's listening, uh, have a great day and we'll see you uh, or you'll, we'll be talking to you in our next episode coming soon. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.